when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Welcome to Global Change Agents with me, Liana Brinded, the Digest Edition, a podcast brought to you by Yahoo Finance UK. You can watch a full version of this interview by heading over to yahoo.co.uk forward slash change agents. Today's guest is Eileen Burbage, MBE. Eileen swapped a career in Silicon Valley for the thriving London tech scene. She's worked at companies including Apple, Skype and Yahoo and is now London's superstar tech VC. Alongside her job as a partner at Passion Capital, Eileen has also served as a tech advisor to the UK government and is the chair of Tech Nation, the UK's network for tech entrepreneurs. Alongside all that, she's recently taken on a non-executive director role at Dixon's Carphone. She's a deeply impressive woman and we were lucky to have her in the studio to find out more. So do you feel that, in a way, not having a roadmap of your entire life career from the outset, which some people do, is actually the source of your success? 100%. Oh, 100%. I really, really believe in serendipity. I believe a whole lot in luck. I know that I owe so much of everything that's happened in my life to luck. Um, I think that it's, it's always useful to have a plan and to have a sort of a roadmap from where you'd like to see things go. Um, but I think it's maybe equally important, if not even more important, to actually be able to sort of be flexible and think, oh, if that's not exactly what I had envisioned, maybe that's worth trying anyway. I think that's extremely important. I think it helps a lot not to have sort of a rigid idea of, well, in one year I want to be doing this, three years I want to be doing that, and in five years here, because I think that could actually limit somebody from from seeing great opportunity that might have been unanticipated. And that's clearly been my life. Yeah, I mean, that's really interesting because the the next part of that stage you're talking about in your career is obviously Silicon Valley and you were there for a while. Years, yeah. Exactly, yeah. it was incredible. And But the thing is, is that you did say that it became too insular, a bit of an echo chamber, and which is yeah. why you wanted to, you know, move on. Do you still think it's like, I know it's been a while since you've been there yeah. um, HQ'd, but yeah, yeah, yeah. do you still feel it's that way? I think that there there's a tendency, and, and I think that's probably the case of any, any kind of ecosystem, though, if I'm really being candid. I mean, obviously, even here in the UK, or if we think about Europe, I think it's really easy for people to think about their domestic or their home markets first and foremost. And if you have a domestic or a home market that's 350 million people strong, it's it's hard not to really be focused on that. But I did think at the time Silicon Valley was was becoming a little bit too insular. I had that. I only had that sort of um, realization because I had people and colleagues that I worked directly with that were responsible for what we would call other regions, when actually these other regions obviously accounted for billions and billions of people and potential users. Um, but even then, I thought, therefore, it might be worth getting international experience for a year or two. I assumed that I would go back to Silicon Valley. So I thought that was my roadmap. That was my plan. I would just come to London for one or two years. And then here I am now 15 years later. <laughs> we know that you're a superstar VC, yeah. and especially that. in London. Um, but when we look at the overall stats in the industry, about 98% of that funding goes to male 
founded companies. And on top of that, there's other stats as well that we're picking out here that 10% of decision makers at VCs are women, only 10%. So those stats have not really budged over the last year or so. Um, what would you say are the key things that people like yourself or the wider industry can do is to improve these stats? Yeah. I mean, I think that you're right. The numbers haven't changed dramatically in the last year or two. I mean, certainly they haven't changed enough, even if it's not dramatic. Um, but I do think on a relative basis, if you look at maybe the, sort of the 10 years prior or the 15 years prior, I think we've made a lot of progress, or at least in terms of the dialogue and raising awareness in the last couple of years. I mean, that's been a step change. When I first moved to London 15 years ago, and you would think about investment or fund management, asset management, financial services, I mean, I think it was, it was clearly male-dominated, um, and it was not necessarily even a question. Or, you know what I mean? It was sort of just accepted, and that was just sort of the status quo. Um, you wouldn't have the level of conversation that we're having now. You wouldn't have had, you know, sort of even government-backed or private uh, sector-backed initiatives to try and see more representation in boardrooms, in decision-making, in fund management. You wouldn't have started to see the measurement about fund returns related to gender. You wouldn't have started to see some of the people taking on studies and trying to get data about correlation and about uh, performance. And I think that's all been extremely important because that's what we need to continue doing in order to start to shift this trend. Um, but the other thing that I would say is I think in addition to sort of having the conversations, shining the spotlight, asking the questions, having the conversations, we absolutely need to work on uh, at the earlier stages and with younger people. I think, um, unfortunately, you know, a lot of women or, you know, ladies, girls are actually opting out of, you know, putting themselves in situations where they can see luck or see opportunity really early on. I think this happens actually at a school age. And I think um, they start to actually close down optionality when they're really, really young, whether it's because they feel peer pressure to talk about different topics other than academic topics uh, topics, or, you know, other than um, pursuing things like math and science. And they'd rather sort of just, you know, pursue uh, more sort of uh, creative uh, sectors because they think that that's what's being expected of them. Whatever it is, I think it's starting really early. And I think that self-selection or that self-opting out process is happening too early. It's happening too much. It shouldn't be happening at all. All full stop. But I think um, there's a lot of work to be done to address that. And so later on, like past the school age and into the businesses, um, you obviously work with a whole portfolio, a whole suite of businesses. Have you worked with them or any of them in terms of looking at um, how diverse they are and actually helping them improve that? We talk about it a lot now, which is great. I think that's another example. I'm glad you asked that because I think that's another example of where even if we haven't seen the numbers dramatically or even non-dramatically changed in the last couple of years. The fact that in board meetings now that I have with portfolio companies or my partners have with portfolio companies or even wider group discussions where we talk about diversity, we talk about hiring, we talk about a lot of this, um, you come into a rhythm after you get to 10, 20 employees, so you've got to start it early. Just even having that conversation, we didn't have that 10 years ago. Um, that's my fault that I didn't bring it up 10 years ago, but I remember as you think about the evolution between now and the last 10 years, there would have been times where if somebody did bring it up, whether it was me or one of my male partners, you know, people might roll their eyes or cringe or people thought, oh, we're just doing this because we have to or it's a checkoff item. And now the conversation is a conversation because it's genuine, because everyone believes it and everyone actually understands what a material difference it makes to commercial viability and success if there's diversity on the team and there's diversity of thought and decision making. And I'm not just talking gender now. So um, we've come a long way. And I think that, yes, in answer to your question, we have this conversation with the companies that we invest in 
all the time because we invest such early stages. We're usually getting involved when a company is anywhere between two and 10 people to start. And so we often work with them through this phase where they go up to 25, 50, 100 employees. And that's when you have to have the conversation. The earlier on, the better um, to start to bake in diversity from the very beginning. Because if you get to the point where you are a team of 30 or 40 people and you're all one homogenous group of people, whatever that demographic uh, trait is, it's going to be really difficult to bring in any diversity at that point because if you interview someone and you invite them to the office and they walk in and it's a room full of people that there's no ability to relate or similarity, you're not going to be able to hire different people. So it's a problem. So do you think that one of the key ways to do that is be as outspoken as possible about unconscious bias? I think that that helps. That absolutely helps. It can't hurt. And I think more and more people need to speak out about it. And I think it's a really, really good thing. You know, I think um, a lot of people who speak about diversity and inclusion don't want to be just that person that talk about diversity and inclusion. But if we don't have anyone talking about it, it's a problem. And so I think it, it's a good thing that more and more people talk about it, absolutely. And I think, yeah, we have to keep, keep, keep talking about it and keep it in the conversation. Well, one of the, um, which is, you know, fantastic that we're talking about it more in general in all different types of industries, is identifying those unconscious biases and actually what the results would be, i.e. Um, a room that's not diverse or an environment that's not inclusive and not having that spread across the board, but also in the workforce. Um, one of the things that was identified was the result of that unconscious bias would be... Um, a lot of leeway for um, especially men um, to be able to fail upwards. And I know that you've previously spoken um, in other interviews about identifying um, mediocre men and how we have to stamp that out. Could you elaborate a bit more um, yeah. on that? Sure. And actually, I should credit, I can't remember who first said that, but I remember reading about it. And I don't know if it was Madeleine Albright or it was somebody that I look up to to that degree, but someone who had sort of said, you know, because there's often um, a challenge when um, I or other people, or more generally, we talk about you know, lifting up more women. Um, oftentimes, there is this challenge that comes back with, oh, should we just lift up all women and forego the men? Like, you know, how, how could you, uh, why would you overlook a skilled or an able man for a woman instead? And the, the sort of retort to that is, for as long as there are mediocre men in positions of influence, decision-making, and power, we clearly don't have enough women because we haven't even pulled the females through. Um, and in a world where there's very little tolerance for mediocre women in those kinds of roles, there's far too much tolerance for mediocre men. So that's the, that's the context in which I think I said that. Um, and I think that you know, people who are potentially threatened by the fact that we might want to lift up underrepresented groups or start to see more representation of under, traditionally underrepresented groups in, in you know, positions of decision-making power and leadership, if one is threatened by that, then I would argue that that person probably has a reason to feel threatened, and that's probably because they're not going to come out as you know, a leader of themselves, and there's probably a, a high degree of mediocrity in them. <laughs> Otherwise, nobody would argue against that. You know, really, um, Good people, as in strong, capable, clever, um, you know, um, successful people, want to work with other good people. Nobody wants to work with mediocre people, or what you know you might call deadweight. You know, and so for someone to actually object to you know other groups of people being lifted up, the only reason they would potentially have an uh, have an objection to that or some kind of issue with that is if they're worried that they'll probably be called out as the deadwood. Well, from those people that you wouldn't want to work with to people that you do want to work with, um, as someone who would be seeing pictures a lot and having yeah. these people come on board and you want to get to know them as well as their company, what would you say are the biggest, um, if someone's coming up to pitch to you, the biggest turnoffs? 
And also on the flip side, what is the biggest like, wow, this, this is great. This is my, my next big thing. Yeah, it's really hard because uh, if we had this down to a science, I think that it would be, you know, it'd be a sort of a blockbuster book kind of a thing. Um, it, there's always a, a, an intangible when, when listening to people pitch. But because we invest so early, I think uh, we have a sort of a special situation where, you know, there's only so much what we can consider with financials, with existing track record, existing history, or you know, um, evidence of, of traction and execution or business operations. We, there, there usually isn't that. The company's probably just been set up, so we can't look at anything historical or in the past. We can only look at the people that are sort of in front of us and what they say they're going to do in the future. So you'd look for anything that you could check, whether it's referencing or otherwise. But otherwise, we're just talking about these people, and so you're thinking about whether or not you have confidence in making decisions about people. Um, in terms of turnoff, it's. It's really hard because I think, as you'd expect, just like in a job interview, just like in a, a media interview, um, when people are talking to potential investors, they're probably on their best behavior. So right off the mark, obviously, if there's any kind of um, rudeness or shortness or it just looks like impatience or any kind of sort of um, unpleasant you know, um, personality traits in that kind of a meeting, that's an immediate you know, non-starter because obviously if, if that's their best behavior, then it's a problem. <laughs> their day-to-day -day is probably much worse. The other thing that we try and gauge, which is harder, you know, but knowing that, that people are generally on their best behavior in front of us as investors is we'll ask the rest of the office or the team that might have interacted with them, how was the interaction? You know, so we'll ask the receptionist, how were they when they checked in? Were they rude? Were they polite? How was it? Um, we might not get a chance to ask that for every single team, but we certainly pay attention if it was like, you know, the reception com comes up to us and says, who was that that you met with earlier because they were a little bit, you know, off or whatever it was, or they were just really a bit short. That's that's a no brace, non-starter as well. Done. We won't even uh, entertain that. Um, so I think a lot of it has to really do with um, the person's sort of um, interpersonal communication skills, their emotional intelligence, and how genuine they are about you know being passionate about what they want to do, but the reasons they want to do that, and whether that's just what they're telling us, or whether that they exhibit that when they interact with other people that they don't need to get something from. Well, there's one last question that I really want to get in here uh, before you go. Um, how do you not burn out? We've been on your whole journey <laughs> of your career, and you, you are one of the busiest people, I think, in London. Um, and you also have a family, you have five children. I do have five children, yeah. Um, how, how do you do it? Are you... Are you the poster child for having no. this all? Oh, no, no, no. So even before you finish, I'm not a poster child for anything. And you're actually giving me far too much credit because you, you're actually assuming that I do do it or I manage it. It's not true. And I should probably clarify. So I've, I've given birth to four children and then I, I'm lucky enough to have a stepdaughter um, with my partner. So we have five at home. Um, but then I think there's a couple of things to, to sort of put out there. One, we co-parent. So I co-parent with my ex-husband. Uh, so the older four, they go back and forth between my house and their dad's house every other week. Similarly, you know, my stepdaughter she goes back and forth between our house and her mom's house every other week. So we either have five kids in the house or none. And I think that that gives me um, a lot more um, flexibility than if I was a full-time parent, for sure. Um, but it also does help keep things into perspective. I think I'm just really, I'm, I'm very lucky though, because I, I'm in a point where I can help dictate my own diary um, and I can sort of either accept meetings or say, listen, I can't make that meeting. I can go on the school pickups if I want to, which you know I feel really lucky to do and I think a lot of people probably don't have in their work situation. So I'm really, really lucky in that way. But I think that um, I also have great you know, business partners who sort of support the fact that obviously my family is really important to me, as are other parts of sort of professional development. So my business partners have always been hugely supportive of me getting involved with the government, which we've talked about, which is great. 
they were extremely supportive when I said I wanted to join, you know, the board of Dixon's Carphone, for example, which is uh, another uh, sort of job that I, I probably went into not appreciating how much time that um, it might take. But I absolutely love it. I think it's making me, you know, a better, stronger investor for very small companies and internet startups. Um, but it's something, like I said, that I had um, a group of people around me, my my partners and my. Um, you know, business partners and my personal partner who've always been supportive of that. And I, it's not possible without that. Um, would you say there's one thing that you're able to fit in for yourself every day amongst all of it? Is there anything that you have to, just for yourself, just that one thing or some time for yourself each day? I don't think I have a daily guilty pleasure, but I do. I definitely, um, if I can, I get my, I don't actually drink coffee, but I love coffee ice cream. That's my sort of, uh, that's my uh, indulgence. So if I sort of pop open a carton of coffee ice cream at the end of the day, that's my sort of day-to-day treat um, or uh, self-care that I try to fit in. But it's really important for me to, to sort of, uh, you know, feel good about the time that I spent during the day. So if that's, you know, between the family or between work and doing other things, I try to, I just try to be mindful of that every day. Thanks for listening to Global Change Agents with me, Liana Brinded, produced by Yahoo Finance UK. A full version of this interview can be found at yahoo.co.uk forward slash change agents. And for more information, go to uk.finance.yahoo.com. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.